Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. When the Steenkamp family was brutally murdered on April 6, 2012, people in the area assumed it was a farm attack. Their 15-year-old son was lucky to have made it out alive. But when the details of his story started not adding up, Authorities realized that the killer was closer than they originally thought. This is Monsters. It was Good Friday of 2012 when the Steenkamp family was attacked. The family lived in the town of Griquistad, the first South African town to be established north of the country's Orange River. By 2011, the town's population was just under 6,500 people. The news that the entire family had been wiped out was shocking to the relatively small community, and it became even more shocking when it was revealed that the Steenkamp family had been murdered. Most people who lived in Griquistad had lived there their entire lives, and so had their parents and grandparents. Members of the community typically spent a lot of time outdoors farming or hunting. And although many regions of South Africa suffered from violent crime, murder in Griquistad was rare. The victims were the mother and father of the family, Dion and Christelle Steenkamp, who were both in their 40s, as well as their daughter, 14-year-old Martella. Dion and Christelle were well-loved members of the local community. Dion was a large man, wearing clothes in the size 5XL, and he had a serious demeanor. He owned a total of five farms and was involved in working on all of them, and he also trained children's teams in a popular equestrian sport called tent pegging. Christelle was also a busy, active member of the community. She ran a biscuit-making business from the farm and also spent a lot of her spare time helping out the local church. Alongside her own business, Christelle worked as a journalist for the provincial newspaper. At about 7 p.m. on April 6, 2012, 15-year-old Don Steenkamp pulled up in front of the police station near his home. Don had been present on the farm at the time of the attacks and showed up at the police station covered in blood. A police officer took Don into an office, hoping to calm the boy down. While there, he told the officer that the other members of his family had been killed by a stranger who'd been prowling around the property. He had been out in the barn when he heard gunshots ring out from the house. He said that he stayed in the barn hiding for about 15 minutes, but it remained quiet so he ran into the house. 
There, he saw his mother, father, and sister had been shot and there was blood everywhere. He said Martella was still alive and he tried to pick her up, but she died in his arms. He went on to say that he got into his father's truck in order to go get help, and as he was driving away, he heard more shots come from the house. As he got to the gate to the property, he saw a rifle and a revolver on the ground, so he stopped and put them in the truck. He then stopped on the property to warn some of the farm workers before continuing on towards the police station. When the police left to investigate the scene, Don washed the blood off his hands and face in the police station courtyard. Henrietta Truder, who managed the restaurant across the road from the station, had been sitting outside drinking a coffee when Dawn arrived, and she had seen the boy run inside in a state of distress. After getting permission from the police, Henrietta came into the police station courtyard to give the boy a drink of water, hoping to calm him down. Dawn explained to her that his whole family had been killed and he was the only survivor. Henrietta noticed that there was a speck of blood behind Dawn's ear and she wiped it away for him. She was aware that, if what Don said was true, he shouldn't wash the blood off his body before being examined for evidence by a forensic unit. However, she felt sorry for the boy who she believed was traumatized, so she didn't intervene. She asked the officers watching over Don if she could take him to a restaurant, stating that it would be a warm place for Don to sit. Don had tried to insist that he should accompany the officers back to the scene of the crime, but they refused to allow him to come with them. After cleaning his face, Don then took off his t-shirt, which was covered in a considerable amount of blood. He threw away the t-shirt in a garbage can, remaining shirtless for a period of time while he was taken to Henrietta's restaurant. Throughout that time, Don was busy texting on his cell phone. He asked Henrietta how many friends he should text to let them know about the murder, and she advised that he should not tell anybody before speaking to the police. Despite Don reporting that Martella had still been alive when he had gone inside the house and then died in his arms shortly after, she was unable to be revived. All three members of the Steenkamp family had died from their injuries by the time first responders arrived at the farm. After hearing Don's story about the intruder, the police began to believe that they were dealing with a farm murder, also known as a farm attack. In South Africa, a farm attack is a violent crime where farmers are targeted by one or more perpetrators who typically carry out a robbery, during which they might sexually assault household members or even torture and kill the victims. While a farm attack isn't an official legal term, the phenomenon is well known in South Africa, and it was something that the police took very seriously. Don also told the police about several potential suspects. A man who had previously worked on the farm had warned his father that the Steenkamp family would be easy targets for a farm attack, and another man had recently argued with Dion over a financial dispute. When the investigators located an abandoned pickup truck that had been left close to the Steenkamp family's farm, they believed that they might have found the attacker's getaway car. However, that was the only piece of evidence that seemed to support the farm attack theory and it turned out that the pickup truck wasn't connected to the crime at all. Despite initially appearing to be a farm attack, as the investigation continued, the story just didn't add up. Farm attacks were typically carried out by a perpetrator who was a stranger to the victims, but it was clear that the killer of the Steen Camps was very familiar with the layout of the farm and the interior of the house. So familiar, in fact, that it didn't just seem like he staked out the house. It appeared that he had been inside the Steen Camp home before. 
He knew where the guns and the house keys were kept, and he was able to ambush Dion and Christelle, shooting them before they had a chance to react. When the police arrived at the scene, they noticed that the front door was still chained shut and bolted, making it impossible for an intruder to have gotten into the house through the front door. Meanwhile, the back door which led into the kitchen had been left open. According to Don, that was the door that the members of the Steenkamp family usually used to enter and exit the house. However, investigators noticed an immediate issue with the theory that the intruder had snuck into the home through the back door. The dogs. While the police officers were at the scene, the officer tasked with taking a video recording of the crime scene had to retake the video because the Steenkamp family's dogs wouldn't stop barking at him. The dogs had been in the house when the murders occurred, and it would have been impossible for a stranger to sneak inside without alerting the dogs, whose barking would have alerted the Steenkamps. Several friends of the family testified, saying the same thing. Every time they arrived at the house, the dogs would bark. Investigators considered the theory that the intruder had used a window to break into the house, or that he had broken in through the front door and then bolted it before he left. However, there were no signs of forced entry, and all the windows and doors were completely undamaged. The rifle and revolver that Don had brought with him to the police station were determined to have been the murder weapons, which made it hard to believe that Don could have heard more gunshots as he drove away from the house. If the guns had already been discarded at the gate, then they wouldn't have been able to have been fired back at the house. Additionally, the guns that had been used in the attack belonged to the Steenkamp family, and there was no sign that the attacker had supplied his own weapon. While firearms were often stolen during a farm attack, it seemed unlikely that a solo attacker would have attempted to overpower the Steenkamps without bringing at least one weapon with him. He would have had to sneak into the house without alerting anyone, including the dogs, know where the guns were in the house, retrieve them, and then shoot the family. It seemed nearly impossible. On top of that, if the motive of the crime was robbery, the attacker had done a poor job of taking anything of value, even after all but one of the household members were dead. While some keys and Dion's knife had been taken from the house, the perpetrator had left several wallets and cash behind, and neither of the two vehicles parked outside, which both had keys left in the ignition, were taken. When police arrived at the farm, they found that the family's safe had been unlocked and left open, with the key still in the keyhole. However, the firearms and large quantity of ammunition inside the safe were still there. The two guns that had been used to shoot the steam cams also hadn't been stolen, even though the killer supposedly took the guns with him when he left the house. He had then dumped the weapons on the side of the road by the gate to the farm, where they were easily found by dawn. Don stated that, on his way to the police station, he had gotten out of the car and picked up the guns from the side of the road and handed them over to the officers when he arrived. From the moment the news of the deaths hit the media, the case was surrounded by rumors. After the police announced that they were not looking for any further suspects, the rumors began to move away from the theory of a farm attack and instead focused on the members of the Steenkamp family. Some people speculated that Dion had shot his wife and daughter and then taken his own life, but had decided to save the life of his son. Others theorized that the killings were somehow connected to Satanism and that Martella had been involved in the occult, leading her to kill her parents and then herself. The most common theory, one that gained significant traction, was that Dawn had actually been adopted and his parents had hid it from him. 
on the day of the murders. He had somehow found out about his adoption, leading him to shoot the rest of his family members in a fit of rage. In almost all cases, where a family is annihilated except for one survivor, investigators become suspicious about whether the survivor was the one who committed the crime. The Steen Camp case was no exception. When an autopsy revealed that Martella had been sexually assaulted between 12 and 24 hours prior to her murder, the suspicion that Dawn was the murderer increased. If an unknown assailant had killed the family, it seemed unlikely that he would have waited almost a day to kill Martella after sexually assaulting her. The more likely explanation was that the person who assaulted Martella was somebody she knew, such as her older brother, Dawn. From the first hours of the investigation, the police had found Dawn's behavior to be strange. The first time he was driven back to the scene of the crime, sitting in the back of the police car, he had asked the officers something like, what do I have to do to inherit everything? The reality was that, as the last surviving member of his family, Don was set to receive a sizable inheritance. The farm and all of his family's assets would belong to him. The inheritance would be about 23 million rand, the equivalent of almost 1.3 million American dollars at the time. During the drive, Don had also bragged about how fast he had driven his father's pickup truck when he was driving to the police station. According to Don's story, he had been in the barn when the first shots were fired, and he had continued to hide there after realizing that there was an intruder killing his family. However, every time he spoke to investigators, he told a different story explaining why he had been in the barn in the first place. At first, Don said that he had gone into the barn to talk to one of his friends on the phone. However, his cell phone records revealed that, while he had tried to call a friend at 5.59pm, the friend had never picked up. Next, Don explained that he had gone into the barn because he needed to clean his knife and or put it away. Finally, he told the police that he had gone into the barn to fix his hunting lamp, or that he had already been in the barn and decided to fix his hunting lamp. Investigators immediately found that difficult to believe. When the police first arrived at the Steen Camp farm, they noticed that the lights inside the house were still on, but the barn lights were switched off. When Don was questioned about that, he explained that he had been repairing the hunting lamp by one of the barn's windows, so he hadn't needed to use a light to see. Despite being able to hear the gunshots, which tipped him off to the fact that his family were being attacked, Don denied that he had heard Martella make any noises while she was being killed. The forensic evidence found at the scene, including bloody fingerprints and blood spatter, suggested that Martella had actually been shot outside and then managed to make her way inside the house. A pool of Martella's blood was found near a tree very close to the barn where Dawn had been hiding. The police believed it was very likely Martella had screamed during her torture, and it was impossible for Dawn hiding so closely in the barn to have not heard it. It was a small detail of the story, and there was no obvious reason to lie about it, but it became clear that Don didn't want to admit that he heard his sister screaming in pain. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
The police also questioned why Don had hidden in the barn and failed to call emergency services, even though he had his cell phone with him the entire time. If he had known that a prowler was on the property and then heard gunshots, why would he have not called the police instead of later driving to the police station himself? Examination of the data revealed that anybody on the farm between 6 and 7 p.m., the time period where the murders had been committed, would have had cell phone coverage. The timeline that Don gave to the police was examined thoroughly, and eventually they found that it was impossible for his version of events to be true. Cell phone records showed that at 6.34 p.m., his mother had still been alive. She had sent a text message to Martella. Don stated that, after hearing the gunshots, he had hidden in the barn for about 15 minutes, making it 6.49 p.m. After that, he somehow managed to go into the house, hold his sister while she died, confirm without a doubt that both of his parents were dead, and then drive 10 kilometers to the police station in a time span of only a few minutes. No matter how fast Don had driven, it would have been impossible for him to do everything he said he did. Especially since, in one version of his story, he returned to the barn for a period of time after checking on his family. In fact, it seemed unlikely that he had been in the barn at all while the murders were taking place. Early after the murders, investigators had noticed that Don had some strange scratch marks on his neck and throat. They appeared to be claw marks from human fingernails. Colonel Dick DeWall, who was the lead investigator on the case, asked Don where he had gotten the marks from. Strangely, he admitted that the marks were from his sister Martella, but claimed that they were from a fight that the pair had gotten into earlier on the afternoon of April 6th, only a few hours before she was killed. Despite the fight clearly being serious enough to cause physical damage to Don, he told Colonel DeWall that he had no memory of what had caused the argument. A t-shirt belonging to Don which had been found at the scene of the crime was also the subject of suspicion. The shirt had been torn in an unusual way with stretch damage to the fabric around the shoulders, suggesting that someone had held the shirt in both hands and pulled downwards with extreme force. Don explained the damage, saying that when he had left the barn and gone into the house, he had seen Martella, who was seriously wounded but still alive. She had reached out for him and grabbed a hold of his t-shirt, trying to pull him down towards her. A medical expert would later say that it was unlikely that Martella could have had the strength to damage the t-shirt based on Dawn's story. It was more consistent with Martella struggling for her life before she was fatally injured. Analysis of the shirt revealed that it was covered with Martella's blood, with a pattern of spatter suggesting that Dawn was close to her when she was shot. If the blood transferred to the shirt just from Dawn holding her, there wouldn't be the type of spatter that was there. Investigators asked Don why he took that shirt off after his sister died, but before he drove to the police station. He claimed that he was disgusted by the idea of having Martella's blood on him, so he changed his shirt. So, after a stranger had murdered his family, without knowing if that murderer was still in the house, he took the time to go into his bedroom and change his shirt. It seemed more likely that he knew he had all the time in the world because it was he himself who was the murderer. Several of Don's shirts were tested for residue from a discharged gun, and two tested positive. Further forensic testing revealed that Don had handled a firearm shortly before his arrival at the police station. There was absolutely nothing to suggest an intruder had carried out the attacks. Samples of fingerprints and DNA were taken from around the Steen Camp house, as well as on the door of the safe and on the murder weapons. 
With more than 70 swabs taken, not a single test identified fingerprints or DNA that belonged to anybody but the three victims and Don. On August 21, 2012, Don Steenkamp was arrested and charged with three counts of murder as well as defeating the ends of justice for claiming the murders were the result of a farm attack. Those wouldn't be the only charges, though, because the medical examiner had determined that Martella had been sexually assaulted 12 to 24 hours prior to the murder. The ME found an injury to Martella's genitalia that was consistent with forced sexual penetration. That led investigators to believe that Don had sexually assaulted his sister and she was either going to tell their parents or had just told their parents. He killed his family to cover up the sexual assault. From there, investigators were able to analyze the contents of Don's cell phone, a BlackBerry 8520. It was on that device that investigators found a text conversation between Don and a friend that had taken place shortly after the murders. The exchange said, Friend, who do they suspect? Don, only me. Friend, are there no other fingerprints? Don, no, only mine. Friend, is there no other evidence to find someone else? Don, no, they're not going to find anyone else. It seemed strange that Don already knew that investigators would not find any evidence to place anyone else in the house that evening. It's almost like he already knew who the killer was. Even after his arrest for the murders of his family, Don's name was kept out of the media by a court order. Regardless of what he was suspected to have done, he was still a minor and the court order would only be lifted on his 18th birthday. The media was unable to report that the killer had been related to the Steen camps because revealing that connection would lead the public to figure out that Don was the perpetrator. The courts did reveal more evidence that was being used during the trial, though, and some of that included a timeline of the murders. It's believed that Don retrieved the revolver and that Christelle was shot first, with the bullet entering the back of her head, paralyzing her. Martella was then shot in the chest but managed to escape out the back door. It's believed that Dion began charging at Don but was shot twice before he could reach him. Don then ran outside where he found Martella leaning against the tree by the barn. He shot her once in the face and beat her with a blunt object because it seemed that he may have been out of bullets. He went back inside the house to grab the rifle and Martella was able to crawl back into the house where she was able to reach the telephone. A blood smear on the phone indicated that she was that close to calling for help before collapsing. Then Don used the rifle to shoot all three of his family members in the head, killing them. After his 2014 trial, 17-year-old Don was still unnamed by the media, but he was found guilty of killing his mother, father, and sister, as well as sexually assaulting Martella before her murder, and being dishonest with the police. Northern Cape High Court Judge President Franz Como found that Don hadn't committed the crimes in a spontaneous fit of rage. In fact, the murders were clearly premeditated. The judge also believed that the motive was clear. After sexually assaulting his own sister, Don had needed a way to prevent his parents from going to the authorities. The judge said, quote, In my view, the minor, the torturer, wanted to have sexual intercourse with Martella. When she refused, she was consequently tortured, raped, and murdered to prevent her from reporting it. Her parents, who would bear witness to the rape, had to be eliminated. There would be no reason for Martella to inform anyone of the sexual activity if a consensual love relationship existed between her and the accused. In Don's own testimony, he told the jury how Martella had died in his arms while declaring that she loved him. 
After seeing him, she had used the last of her strength to reach out and grab his shirt, causing the stretch damage that had made investigators suspicious. However, Don also contradicted himself, saying that he had been repulsed by the sight of Martella's blood and had pushed her away when she tried to grab onto him. Don gave that testimony without showing any emotion or remorse. Later, the judge remarked about Don's demeanor in court, saying, quote, He never appeared flushed, nor did he stumble or trip over his words, even under cross-examination. Despite Don remaining calm while telling his version of events, the judge was quick to point out that his story about holding his sister while she died wasn't true. In fact, Martella had died in pain from several gunshot wounds after Don had pushed her away when she tried to reach out for him. Martella hadn't just been shot, she had been severely tortured in an attack where it was clear that she fought desperately for her own life, resulting in injuries that were described as gruesome. Because of the extent of her injuries, she had likely been too weak to grab Don's shirt with the force required to tear it. The only time that she possibly could have grabbed the shirt was prior to being shot or during a struggle with Don. The judge asked the jury, quote, How could the accused be so nauseated by Martella's blood that he pushed her away violently, while she was reaching out to him in her hour of need? There were very few people who could have sexually assaulted Martella in the 24-hour window of time before she died, causing the injuries to her genitals. The sexual assault had taken place during Martella and Dawn's school holiday, in a period of time where there were no other guests at the family's farm. That meant that there were only two suspects who could have assaulted the teenager, Dawn or her father, Dion. With few other options, the defense argued that Dion Steenkamp was the one that had assaulted Martella, trying to disprove the prosecution's theory that Don had killed his family to cover up the fact that he had raped his sister. However, it was clear from Dion's injuries that he had been shot by another person, and it was not possible that his death had been self-inflicted. Don had also admitted early in the investigation that he had gotten into some kind of physical altercation with Martella before she died, resulting in deep claw marks on his neck, but continued to insist that he couldn't remember what he and his sister had been fighting about. Another contributing factor to Don being found guilty was his initial attempts to mislead the police by telling them that he believed his family had been the victims of a farm attack. That had resulted in investigators going on what the judge called a wild goose chase instead of focusing their attention on people who personally knew the Steen camps. Judge President Como believed that Don had deliberately tried to make the crime scene like a farm attack by opening the safe and dumping the guns on the side of the road, but because he was only 15 and had no experience with law enforcement, he hadn't been able to create a believable story. Despite killing three people in cold blood because he was a minor both at the time of the crimes and during his trial, Don only received a sentence of 20 years. When he heard the guilty verdict, he showed no signs of any emotion. With a straight face, he hugged the surviving members of his family before being transported to Kimberly Correctional Center's youth detention facility. If he had gotten away with his family's murders, he would have been the recipient of a sizable inheritance. Instead, he was labeled in the media as the boy who raped his sister and sentenced to spend the rest of his young adult life behind bars. During the trial, Judge President Como was asked by the media about whether the perpetrator's identity would be published before judgment was delivered. He responded that it would not be, but added, quote, The horse has now bolted. What happens after I have given judgment as of now is none of my concern as presiding judicial officer in this case. 
At the time of sentencing, it was two days until Don Steenkamp's 18th birthday. After that point, he would be named in the media. Before handing down his sentence, the judge told him, quote, In two days, you are a man. Now be a man. Family annihilators are one of the worst monsters in the stories I cover because their goal is to destroy an entire family, leaving only themselves in the wake of a tragedy. It's the ultimate act of narcissism, and for someone like Don, who will be a free man in the not-too-distant future, they're unlikely to move on and not destroy more lives. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.